Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Soul Food, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. The Bible says Solomon was building his own house 13 years and he finished his entire house. He built the house of the forest of Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits and its breadth 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. It was built on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was covered with cedar above the chambers that were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were window frames in three rows and window opposite windows in three tiers. All the doorways and windows had square frames and window was opposite window in three tiers. And made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits and its breadth 30 cubits. There was a porch in front with pillars and a canopy in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to pronounce judgment, even the hall of judgment. It was finished with cedar from Florida rafters. His own house where he was to dwell in the other court back of the hall was of like workmanship. Solomon also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter whom he had taken in marriage. All these were made of costly stones, cut according to measure, sawed with saws back and front, even from the foundation to the coffin, and from the outside to the great court. The foundation was of costly stones, huge stones, stones of eight and ten cubits, and above were costly stones cut according to measurement in cedar. The great court had three courses of cut stone all around, and a course of cedar beams, so had the inner court of the house of the Lord, and the vestibule of the house." Father, we pray that as you take, we take this time to study your word, that you would anoint these lips of clay. And as Connie prayed, that you would speak individually to every heart here. Drive your truth home, O oh God, for what we need to hear from you. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. you may be seated. It's important, important to understand that the Bible's message is about everything. Now, of course, the Bible does not tell us everything about everything. And sometimes Bible readers have tried to find things that simply are not there. This is a mistake and leads to unnecessary confusion and conflict. But regardless of that truth, the Bible teaches us the truth about everything. Not the truth about everything, but the essential, most fundamental, important truth about everything. 
In the simplest possible terms, the first sentence of the Bible tells us this truth where we read, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth are the Bible's way of saying everything. Just to make sure that we get the understanding of everything, listen to how the Apostle Paul puts the same truth. He writes, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. He said all things were created. Everything means everything. Genesis 1-1 is kind of a heading for the whole Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Bible explains the consequences of that truth. Genesis is part of a much larger story. In much the same manner, how Solomon built the house is also tucked inside the larger story of how he built the temple in Jerusalem. And what that means to us as part of God's fulfilled promises. Now some scholars see this as an insertion, kind of as a digression, yet it seems to come at a natural break in the book. Chapter 5 told us how Solomon prepared to build the temple, while chapter 6 told us how he actually built it inside and out. And the rest of chapter 7 is going to tell us how Solomon furnished the temple and what he put inside it. But the first 12 verses briefly describe the rest of the king's buildings. For the present, we must recognize that it's far easier to be excited over interior decorating than it is to decipher someone else's written description of their, of their interior decorating. Especially when that interior decorating predates you by about 3,000 years and also contains no pictures or diagrams. Let me just be honest with you this morning. I don't understand the whole decorating thing. Things like there are certain towels that you're not supposed to use, they're just put there for decoration. It reminds me of one show where a guy asked his buddy, hey, what do women want out of life? His friend sighed and replied, as far as I can tell, what they really want is drapes. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Solomon built his own house over the course of 13 years, and he finished all of his house. 1 Kings 6.38 tells us that Solomon spent seven years building the temple, and here we read that he spent 13 years building his own house. As we read through the chapter, we can get some understanding of the immensity and the expense of this house that he constructed for himself. But I ask you to note something. All the scripture does not record the expense of the project. It took him 13 years to complete it. In contrast, Solomon completed the temple in only seven years. Now we could explain it on the basis that the palace was a much bigger project than the temple. But to me that just seems inadequate. So why has the writer of 1 Kings chosen to place it right here, interrupting the flow of his own story? I think the evidence is subtle, but are we to start seeing that Solomon was losing sight 
of his calling. Had his own name become more important than the name of the Lord? Is this another example of Solomon loved God except? Now the palace complex was a good and necessary thing. But was it in danger of becoming the main thing as Solomon drifted off of course? Now, our writer has not given us any answers by his interruption, but he has certainly raised some questions, I think. This could be the second sign of Solomon's slow seduction and demise, with the first being his marriage to the Egyptian princess. According to one commentator, the whole project smacks of affluence and indulgence. Admittedly, 1 Kings does not explicitly criticize Solomon for building such a beautiful palace. Yet we do find strong words of warning from the prophets. Jeremiah pronounced God's woe against any king who says this, I will build myself a great house of spacious upper rooms, or cuts out windows for his palace and panels his interior with cedar. Then Jeremiah asked a question that we could, excuse me, well inquire of Solomon. Do you think you are a king just because you compete in cedar? Now Jeremiah said this with a special concern for true social justice. He knew that what made a king was not a palace, but righteousness for the poor and the needy. Not that it was wrong necessarily for the king to live in a palace. But when someone is living in a luxury home, it's easy to overlook people who have no home and can use some help. Now, in fairness to Solomon, he did first build the temple, and then and only then did he begin building his own house. Later in Israel's history, the prophet Haggai will indict the people of Judah for being so concerned about building their own homes that they had neglected the building of the temple. So, at this point, though, Solomon's priorities were correct. How about us? Are we like Solomon? As we look at ourselves and allow the Holy Spirit to shine His searchlight into our hearts... Can we say, yes, Lord, I am truly seeking your kingdom first? Or are we mainly concerned about building our own houses and attending to our own needs? If you are doing the latter, you will find yourself frustrated. For as the Lord will say through Haggai, your pockets will have holes and your stomach will be empty. Seek first the kingdom, my friends, and all you truly need, the Lord promises to add unto you. Even for all its splendor, Solomon's house receives just a brief mention. As far as the Holy Spirit is concerned, this is all that it deserves because Solomon's house is not nearly as important as the temple of God. By de-emphasizing Solomon's palace, the Bible is keeping things in their proper priority. Verse 2, please. He built the house of the timber from Lebanon. Its length was 100 cubits, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits. 
on four rows of cedar pillars with cedar beams on the pillars. And it was paneled with cedar above the side chambers, which were on the 45 pillars, 15 in each row. There were artistic window frames in three rows, and window was opposite window at three intervals. And all the doorways and doorposts had squared artistic frames, and window was opposite window at three intervals. Then he made the hall of pillars. Its length was 50 cubits, and its width 30 cubits. And a porch was in front of them, and pillars and a threshold in front of them. And he made the hall of the throne where he was to judge, the hall of judgment, and it was paneled with cedar from floor to floor. We learn here that what is called in verse 1 his entire house is actually consisting of a number of different buildings. The house of the forest of Lebanon was probably so named because of its many cedar pillars. The administrative building that we're about to see was larger and more complex than the house of the Lord. This did not make them more important to either Solomon or the writer, but it did make them a bigger project. It was about the same height, 45 feet, but it was about 150 feet in length compared with 90 and 75 feet in width compared with 30. And the size of the buildings were no doubt dictated by its function. It was apparently used as an armory and a treasury in which numerous valuable items and weapons were stored, and it was probably also a place of assembly. And in verse 7, we are told that he also built the Hall of Judgment. And we aren't told much about this. The verse is far from clear to those who are trying to form some kind of mental image about this building. And we may assume that the text is not intended to do that, and we must be content with some degree of vagueness. Even fewer details are given here. We are told nothing about the dimensions of this place and, let, and very little about its construction except that once again, there was cedar everywhere. We are not told where this hall stood, but since it's mentioned between the house of the force of Lebanon and the hall of judgment, it may be that it stood between those two structures. We just don't know. But really, the significance of this structure displaces such particulars. First, it's called the hall of the throne. It was the throne of God's king. This hall therefore represented the sovereign rule of King Solomon just as the most holy place with his cherubim represented the sovereign rule of the Lord. Now giving people justice was one of the king's major responsibilities. Judging from his prayer in Psalm 72 which Solomon wrote, he took this job very seriously. This is the theme of Psalm 72. Listen carefully to this psalm and consider what justice delivered by God's king involves. Solomon writes, Give the king your justice, O God, and your righteousness to the royal son. May he judge your people with righteousness and the poor with justice. Let the mountains bear prosperity for the people and the hills in righteousness. May he defend the cause of the poor of the people and give deliverance to the children of the needy and crush the oppressor. May they fear you while the sun endures and as long as the moon throughout all the generations. May he be like rain that falls on the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his day may the righteous flourish and peace abound 
till the moon be no more. May he have dominion from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. May desert tribes bow before him and may his enemies lick the dust. May the kings of Tarshish and of the coastlands render him tribute. May the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings fall down before him. All nations serve him. Why? For he delivers the needy when they call, and the poor and him who has no helper. He has pity on the weak and the needy, and saves the lives of the needy. From oppression and violence he redeems their life, and precious is their blood in his sight. Long may he live. May gold of Sheba be given to him. May prayer be made for him continually, and blessings invoked to him all the day. May there be an abundance of grain in the land. On the tops of the mountains may it wave. May its fruit be like Lebanon. And may people blossom in the cities like the grass of the field. May his name endure forever. His fame continue as long as the sun. May people call him blessed and all nations be blessed in him. That's what King Solomon's throne in the hall of justice should be have been about. Tragically, as time goes on, it seems that he is going to lose sight of this. Now in this context, to judge means more than just to punish wrongdoers. It means to put things right. Many years earlier, the elders of Israel had come to the aged prophet Samuel and asked him to appoint a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. Now that request was wrong on several levels. The desire to be like all the other nations was a rejection of their calling to be God's chosen people. Their request for a king was at that time a failure to trust the judges like Samuel, whom God had provided when they needed it. But they were not wrong to long for someone to judge them. This is what God had done again and again throughout the preceding centuries as he delivered them from their enemies and established justice in the land and they continued to put things right for them. Before leaving this section, perhaps we could even say that this hall was a sign or a symbol of the final judgment. Solomon built a temple which signified the presence of God and opened the way up to eternal life. But he also built a hall of justice which signified God's righteousness and prophesied the final judgment. According to Solomon, once again in Proverbs 20:26, he wrote, A wise king winnows the wicked and drives the wheel over them which is a poetical way of saying that he will punish his enemies. So it will be at the final judgment of Jesus Christ, who will sit on his throne and ju- for justice, and he's going to wisely declare the eternal destiny of every person who has ever lived. The Hall of Thrones reminds us that one day we are all going to come before God in judgment. And it doesn't matter whether people believe that or not. Judgment is coming. 
Sometimes when you confront unbelievers with their sins, they will say, hey, only God can judge me. What they don't realize is God is going to judge them. And he's going to judge them primarily on the acceptance or rejection of his son. The glorious news of the gospel is that God has already judged his son for the sins of anyone who would but come to him in faith and repentance. Jesus can save us. And if we are wise, we're going to settle our case long before the day of judgment ever comes by claiming the cross as our only means of defense. If we believe in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ for our sins, we will not be condemned, but we will instead have eternal life. Look at verse 8 with me. And his house where he was to live, the other courtyard entered from the hall, was of the same workmanship. He also made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, who Solomon had married. All these were made of valuable stones, a stone cut according to measure, sawed with saws, inside and outside. Even from the foundation to the copying, and from the outside to the large courtyard. And the foundation was of valuable stones, large stones, stones of ten cubits and stones of eight cubits. And above were valuable stones, cut according to measure and cedar. So the Lord's courtyard all around had three rows of cut stone and a row of cedar beams, as well as the inner courtyard of the house of the Lord and the porch of the house. Once again, the wording is not entirely clear, but it seems to indicate that the royal residence was behind presumably the hall of the throne and set in a courtyard, possibly the outer court of the house of the Lord, as suggested by the inner court. Verse 8 also says that he made a house like this hall for Pharaoh's daughter, whom Solomon had married. Now we met this woman back in chapter 3, where we learned that, that she lived in the old city of David until this present dwelling was completed. Eventually, Pharaoh's daughter and a thousand other women would prove to be a stumbling block for Solomon, tripping him up into the sin of idolatry. So the provision of this house for her, though, completes our brief tour of Solomon's entire house. Verse 10 tells us that the foundation was made up of valuable stones. Again, I remind you that it is what is unseen that provides the foundation for that which takes place in our lives, in our ministries, in our families. The time no one sees you up in the morning seeking the Lord is what is going to build your foundation. Costly? Yes. Necessary? Absolutely. Just know that the Lord takes note of all the devotion we give Him even if no one else ever knows about it. I read this story of a European craftsman who traveled to America to give his entire life to some of the most intricate work in one of its grandest places of worship. A tourist was noticing the edifice one day, and he noticed a craftsman doing meticulous work, high up near the ceiling, focusing all of his skill on some symbol that was completely invisible from the floor. In fact, he was occupied with a detail that faced the ceiling out of view of any worshiper. So the sightseer asked, Why are you being so exact since no one can see the detail you are creating from this distance? 
the busy artist shot back, God can. Is that not the position of the writer of 1 Kings chapter 7? Is he not suggesting that intricate, carefully wrought beauty is most fitting for the God of the Bible? Is he not implying that nothing can be too good, too lavish, or too well done for such a marvelous God? We must never offer our leftover slop to him. Whether it's our time, our talents, or our treasury, he deserves only our very best. Who would have thought the Holy Spirit would use 1 Kings chapter 7 to convict us of the casual and flippant procedures we sometimes call service to the king? The good news this morning, though, is God wants to build us to a glory that far outshines and surpasses Solomon's house. In the Bible's unforgettable story of David, one chapter of wars and triumphs seemed to follow another. In contrast, the story of his son, King Solomon, it's one chapter of building works that seems to be followed by another. Now Solomon's story may appear to be less interesting, but that's only if you prefer times of war to times of peace. King David fought and defeated the enemies of his people so that King Solomon could be the builder of a peaceful kingdom. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of what both David and Solomon were. In other words, the purpose of God that lay behind the lives of David and Solomon has been fully realized in Jesus Christ. Or again, we could say that the promise of God that explains King David and Solomon has finally been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, we properly understand David's victories when we see that they were in anticipation of the victory won by Jesus Christ over all the evil enemies. That that triumph was won on the cross when he died and rose again from the dead. Jesus Christ, like David, has fought and defeated the enemies of all of God's people. Likewise, we properly understand King Solomon's building works when we see that they are also an anticipation of Jesus Christ and what he meant when he said, I will build my church. That's you and I. And so to help us to avoid the dangers and distraction and extravagance, Jesus made a very memorable and simple comparison. He was preaching his famous Sermon on the Mount, encouraging people not to worry so much about their own daily needs, but to instead first seek the kingdom of God. He said, Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor do they spin, yet I tell you that Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. In making this comparison, Jesus assumed that people knew the glories of Solomon's kingdom, including his magnificent palace. King Solomon lived in a dream house, packed with golden treasure. Yet, Jesus was not overly impressed with the king's riches, because he knew that even Solomon, with all of his glory, could not compare the simple splendor of a single field lily. Somehow, the lilies of the field managed to avoid the dangers that tempted Solomon, 
and still tempt us. What do I mean? Lilies are utterly undistracted. To build his house, Solomon had to send thousands of lumberjacks and stonecutters into the hills. And when they came back, it took them more than a decade to finish his palace. By contrast, the lilies of the field, they don't work at all. They neither toil nor spin, but grow effortlessly, basking in the sunshine as they are showered with rain from heaven. Nevertheless, the beauty of the lily is one of God's most extravagant and greatest masterpieces. There is more glory in one single wildflower than all the palace of King Solomon. Now, Jesus wants wants us to apply those lessons by comparing the field lilies to ourselves. Although it does much less work, the lily of the field is more beautiful than we are. It's also more transitory, which is another point of comparison. Flowers do not live nearly as long as we do. They are basically alive today and gone tomorrow. So, here's a plant that does less work than we do and lives for less time than we do, and yet in many ways is far more beautiful than we will ever be. God has covered the field lilies with glory. The point is, if God takes such good care of the lilies, then he can trust, we can trust him to take even better care of us. There's a poem that goes, Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these anxious people run about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. That is what Jesus wants us to understand. Destined for eternity, we are much more valuable to God than all the lilies of the field and all the birds of the air. Therefore, we do not need to worry about getting something to eat or having something to wear, let alone finding a better place to live. God knows what we need. He wants, us, he wants us to live for his kingdom and then just let everything else fall into its place. And as we finish this morning, we can also trust God that when the time is right, he is going to give us the biggest home improvement ever. We could call it the world's most extreme makeover. I don't know if you ever watched it, but the people who get a new home on Extreme Makeover are always overwhelmed when they see their new house. Tears flow freely for people who feared that they were going to lose everything instead now have a dream home. This tells us something important about the human heart. We all have a deep longing for a place to call home, a place that is just right for us. And I, for one, long to be there. Let us pray. Father, it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that you do take care of the lilies of the field and the birds of there. Not even one falls to the ground that does not have your attention. Even the hairs of our head are numbered. I do believe, God, that if we truly believed you had that kind of care for us, It revolutionize our Christian life. Drive that truth into our heart today, I pray.
In the name of Jesus we ask it. Amen.